Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In the summer of 2020, After the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, millions of people around the world spilled out into the streets to protest. As an organization, Black Lives Matter began several years earlier. But in the summer of 2020, it was at the center of our social and political life. And as a broader movement for racial justice, Black Lives Matter has succeeded in lots of ways, most notably in raising the salience of issues like police violence and criminal justice reform. Now, what the ultimate impact of all this will be, that remains an open question, one that historians of the future will have to answer. But still, we ought to see BLM as part of a much longer and a much broader effort to build a better country. And it's worth asking, now three summers after George Floyd, what will it actually take to achieve that? I'm Sean Illing, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Cedric Johnson. He's a professor of Black Studies and Political Science at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And he's the author of a new book called After Black Lives Matter. Johnson makes the case that a protest movement focused on improving economic conditions, and not just for Black Americans, but for everyone, would be a more effective way to achieve racial justice than a movement centered mostly on Black identity. And he makes this case in a nuanced, detailed way drawing on many thinkers and activists from the history of the civil rights and black liberation movements. He has a bunch of thoughts about how the BLM movement might have gone better, but he also has some concrete ideas about where we can go from here. And that's really the focus of his book and our conversation, The Future. And though Johnson advocates for police reform, particularly in cities, He says that a movement focused solely on reforming racist cops will miss the deeper problems in our society, of which police are just a symptom. 
Cedric Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I really appreciate this book of yours that we're going to talk about. It's both a work of criticism and also an attempt to redirect the attention of people fighting for racial justice to what you consider the source of the fundamental problem. Right. So I'm trying to do a few things, right? I mean, for one, is to try to bring this conversation about policing out of a conversation which is mostly about it being an exceptional condition that only Black people are facing, bringing it back into a discussion about the overall society we live in and about capitalism, you know, at this particular moment. And so instead of thinking about these victims of police violence and victims of the carceral apparatus more generally as victims of racism, what I've done sort of moving along with a number of other scholars, you know, over the last few decades, and even going back to some of the early criticisms from the 1960s from groups like the Black Panther Party, is to think about this as a problem of how we've come to manage what I call surplus population in the book, right? People who are unemployed, underemployed, folks who we've deemed uh, disposable, to be honest, right? We've, we've abandoned social policy, you know, generous social policy, if we can even say that was the case at an earlier moment in American history. And we've traded out social welfare for a type of social warfare against the poor, right? And when we take that position, it leads us in a different direction, right? We're not just talking about racist cops. We're talking about a system that operates very much the same. If you leave the urban context and you go to rural areas and small towns and old busted industrial towns, we see the same type of management of the desperately poor. And so I think that's a, that's a different problem, and it requires a different set of solutions than just uh, reforming the police. Why do you think... Black Lives Matter exploded into public consciousness in the summer of 2020 the way it did. I mean, we all know about the murder of George Floyd, but there have been many other examples of egregious police killings caught on tape. Yeah, What was it about that one and that moment? So I think there's a couple things, right? One is the context of the pandemic shelter in place. That was the backdrop in which George Floyd is out on that one day. It was Memorial Day weekend, like everybody else, trying to enjoy some time with his friends. Um, it was sort of on the tail end of shelter-in-place restrictions. And I think what it did for a lot of us is it gave us a chance to recover um, the so-called third space. We lost the third space, the first being our household, the people we're connected to. The second being the workplace, which we lost as well. A lot of us working from home, we're not in a physical workplace. And the third space being that place we create for ourselves, that social connections we have outside of our families, outside of our work, all sorts of things that we could have been doing that we lost. The George Floyd moment allowed us to be back in public again, right? And people had a chance to reconnect with friends. And so there's a social aspect of it, right? The return of the third space that we miss. I think. George Floyd's murder also was a catalyst in the sense that it gave people a chance to protest against the the climate of the Trump years, right? I mean... Huge factor. You look at some of those protests, people are protesting Trump and the handling of the pandemic as much as anything else. So I think there are a lot of different things happening. You know, certainly anti-racism becomes the the main expressive part of it, Um, and in particular opposition to what happened to George Floyd. But I think, you know, many of us felt vulnerable coming out of that COVID-19 
moment and the uncertainty it created for a lot of us, right? And so, you know, again, it's it's something I'm still sifting through. Yeah. But I think that accounts for some of the the massive outpouring of protests across the summer of 2020. You know, and there was as we moved later into that summer, there's this national spike in support mm-hmm. for BLM. But it didn't take long for that support to fade. Right. It, what do you think happened there? I mean, it, it's not a simple story, but yeah, yeah. I'll ask anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is where we run into issues with folks who want to read maybe much more progressive politics into what happens, right? So I think mm. I listen to some friends and they see it as, well, you know, this was a, a moment where everybody was against the police. And I'm like, well, not so fast, right? People were upset about the murder of George Floyd. And we did see a moment where most Americans supported the basic premise of Black Lives Matter to say that African-Americans are disproportionately targeted for police abuse, right? There was a slim majority around that. But by the end of the summer, I mean, by the time we get to the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, you know, that's dissipated, right? And even in the places like Minneapolis, where we heard talk of like a veto-proof majority in support of defunding the police, that also disappeared, right? I think there's a few reasons for it. One is that it was really a focused opposition, right? It was focused on what had happened to George Floyd and what that meant. I think also, and we've seen this in other historical moments, people didn't like the more violent aspects of the protests, right? And so looting, you know, widespread looting, which was, you know, places like Chicago got hit really hard. It was concentrated within downtown. But once Lori Lightfoot took the National Guard and created a perimeter around downtown, looting and destruction of property spread across the entire city and into the suburbs. And I think for many people, that was too much, right? You know, and you get some people like, well, we're okay with peaceful protests, but we don't like destruction of property. So I think that was also a factor in turning some support against it. You know, and the other thing too is, I mean, many Americans have short attention spans, right? And I think we were on to other things by the end of the summer, right? We were concerned about other things. And the arrest of Chauvin might have been enough to satiate some people in that moment, right? The the fact that he would be prosecuted for what he did was enough to quiet some of the the opposition that stirred up so quickly. Do you think it would have gone another way without those images of burning buildings and burning cars and looted stores? Yeah, I mean, I think for some publics, right? You know, um, you had a uh, owner of a photography shop in downtown Chicago whose store was just ransacked, right? And when he's interviewed by the press, he doesn't condemn the looters. He actually says, you know, this is this is a bigger problem. We should have stayed with Black Lives Matter, right? We should have dealt with the issue versus moving on to the next thing. So here's somebody who's directly been affected by vandalism but who's siding with the protests, right? So I think there's complexities in there, but I think for some Americans, you know, especially those who weren't in those urban centers, those who may not have been connected to activism and protests for a longer time, um, it was easy to kind of slip back into this mode of, well, we want to see protests, but we don't want to see destruction of, of neighborhoods and commercial corridors and all the rest. To be clear, you know, I don't want to make this conversation, and, and this conversation won't be a kind of referendum on Black Lives Matter. Sure, sure. I don't think that's what your book is either. I mean, No, not at all. No one knows what the ultimate impact of this movement will be. That's a question for historians of the future. But my sense 
is that you are worried about a kind of cynicism that's taken root in our politics. And this is something I connect with. Mm. You know, there's so much racial pessimism right now. And, you know, a lot of it is unjustified and, and almost all of it is counterproductive. I mean, as you point out in the book, Black life in America has improved significantly over the last century. And it's not some kind of mission accomplished situation, no. but that's not an insignificant fact. I mean, even during Jim Crow, as you say, Black Americans' faith in the democratic promise of America persisted. Yeah, one of the things I would hope from the book, right, and it's, it's tough to convey at times, is that there's a tremendous amount of optimism that's animating some of those chapters, right? Uh, even as I'm criticizing police behavior, even as I'm taking aim at different manifestations of identity politics that I see as as kind of unproductive or dead ends, I still have a deep faith in historical possibilities, right? I mean, if, if I don't, then what's the point in getting up every morning, right? And, and getting back into this. Uh, the major moments of transformation in American life, whether that's the abolition of slavery, whether it's the, you know, the massive gains for labor that we saw that were kind of consecrated in, in New Deal legislation, or the dismantling of Jim Crow, right? I mean, when you look at that history, it's not a history that's simply in black and white. It's a history of people who were courageous, people who were principled, folks who took stands that were unpopular with their families, people who put their necks on the line. If you just simply use a sense of racial identity or ethnic identity and alliance to understand that, you miss a whole lot, right? Because there's no, there's no abolition of slavery in my mind without not just people like John Brown and those who joined him in the raid at Harper's Ferry, but also radical Republicans, right, who supported legislation and even people who weren't so radical, who supported the major amendments that changed the Constitution and created the formal end to slavery. So I just think, like, we got to think about this history with its complexities, which it's tough when we're in these charged kind of social media debates and, you know, people already have their minds made up. But the history is always much more complicated. And there are people on the right side who you might not expect to be there. For me, that's where I get inspiration from. You bring up this essay in the book I never heard of from, I think, like 1971 or 72. Oh, yeah. From Marshall Berman. Uh, it's Notes Toward a New Society. I had never heard of him or that before. Mm -hmm. But it reminds me a lot of Richard Rorty's critique of left-wing pessimism, which he saw, and he was of the left himself, but he saw it as an abandonment of conventional politics. And I think the way you put it in the book is to say that you worry that there's a loss of basic optimism regarding the power of ordinary people. And mm -hmm. this is something you really see blossom on the left after the 60s. And it's just a political dead end, right? There's no viable path forward that doesn't basically include a damn near religious faith in the potential of participatory democracy. I mean, without that, what do we got? What's the alternative? Right. No, I mean, I really enjoy Berman. I'm sad we lost him. He's not somebody I've ever had a chance to meet. So in the passages I'm citing in the book, he's pushing back up against a pretty popular position in the 1960s, which sees most Americans who've now become a part of this middle-class suburban life or who want to be a part of that as having abandoned 
all of the left politics and working class politics of the early part of the 20th century. And they've been written off by the new left. And Berman's kind of like, you know, not so fast, right? Why are we so quick to believe that our own communities we came from, why do we think that they're not capable of criticizing the society and developing some alternative? Why do we have to look to either the most downtrodden and excluded in the form of Blacks in the United States within ghettos, or uh, on the other side, any colonial movements thousands of miles away? Like, why can't we see ourselves as redeemable with the same sort of sense of possibility? Yeah. That was valuable when he said it in the early 70s. It's still valuable now because what I'm finding, you know, some of the most dogged defenders of this idea that Black Lives Matter is something that everybody should support, nobody should criticize. It tends to be white liberals and leftists who still see themselves playing like a backseat role, right? <laughs> right? And still see themselves as like following behind the latest protest movement as opposed to doing what we should be doing, which is rolling up our sleeves and getting engaged in the communities where we live and trying to win over people to a different set of historical possibilities, right? Which, for me, starts with public goods type of, of socialism, right? Thinking about how do we decommodify those things that we all rely on for our survival. Well, let's let's get into that. I mean, this is really the crux of your argument. and what you're calling for in this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, if anything sums up your, your case, it's this phrase, abolish the conditions. Right. Explain why you prefer abolish the conditions over abolish the police, because I think the answer to this kind of unlocks your whole argument here. So I, I, I do agree. Let me just start with that, you know, sort of in the spirit of thinking about the value of Black Lives Matter. I do agree with the idea of demilitarization, right-sizing, changing the, the scale in which police operate. There's certain incidents that happen in communities. Uh, and I was just in Seattle this past weekend, and I saw many people who are you know, in the midst of mental health crises. I don't want to call the cops on those people. They need care. And so I think there's a different way to think about those situations. And Black Lives Matter activists have been great in illuminating that problem. At the same time, I don't share the abolitionist view that we can completely do away with police in the sense that we can do away with force as it relates to politics within a liberal democratic society that we have right now, or even the more progressive left society as many of us dream about, right? I think that force is kind of an inseparable part of, of political life. And the examples I try to bring out in the book even when we think about the just society, right? And so a society that doesn't have slavery, a society that doesn't have legal apartheid, in order to achieve those things, we had to use force. It wasn't just enough to legislate them. We needed to have interventions at the federal level to force those persons who would be non-compliant to go along with the new regime and the new order. And so after the abolition of slavery, we needed a federal occupation of the Deep South in order for Blacks in the Deep South to have meaningful citizenship. And the moment that that was removed, that project came to a crashing halt. The same is true for uh, desegregation from the 1950s onwards, right? I mean, in that regard, force is sometimes necessary if we're going to have a state that's meaningful and has territorial sovereignty. 
force is a fundamental part of that. It's not the face that we want to see, but coercion and force are always a part of it, right? So there's that part. The bigger issue is that I think we could scale back police departments if we want right now. We can, we can defund, but if we're not dealing with the fundamental conditions of inequality, which is, you know, as I argue, this is what policing exists to manage right now, we'll still be stuck with a lot of the same problems. And it's quite easy for some Americans who don't have to deal with issues of violent crime. So one thing I always hear from abolitionists, they'll say, well, you know, crime has been on decline for years, which is true, right? If you look at various metrics, crime has been on decline. But there's still some communities that face a tremendous amount of gun violence disproportionately. And so you can't just say to them, let's defund, let's do away with police, right? You also have to come up with other alternatives. And I think, you know, this is where I'm in line with some abolitionists, right? They actually are saying, let's redistribute wealth, let's have more benevolent social programs. I just think we have to go deeper. We can actually work to abolish some of these conditions altogether. For Cedric, there's an essential connection in our society between capitalism and policing. I'll ask him about that after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. When I started reading your book, I'm sort of nodding affirmatively as I go along, thinking, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm here for this, man. I'm here for this. Right, right. <laughs> and then I get to that first chapter on the history of policing. Oh, yeah. And that was the first moment I found myself starting to go, whoa, whoa, whoa hold up, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was this line in particular where you, you wrote, policing continues to exist for the advancement of the interest of capital. Mm-hmm. Now, my first thought 
when I hit that line was, all right, I think I know what he's saying, and there's some truth to this, but you can't reduce all the policing to that. There are other totally legitimate justifications for policing. But then I kept reading, and I realized, I I don't think you disagree with that, right? Mm -hmm. There's a more nuanced historical argument you're trying to make about the role of policing in our society and how one of its core functions is to deal with the consequences of so many of our inequities. Sure. No, absolutely. There are many things that police do on a day-to-day basis that don't have anything to do with with violence. Yeah. The author, Nicole Siegel, makes that point in her book where she talks about police as violence workers, but then she concedes that a lot of what they do isn't about active use of violence, even though they have that as their power and their reason for being. And that's another thing that I think we have to be careful about. If there's a catastrophe on the highway, an accident. We need first responders. We need people who can redirect traffic. You know, I know there's some folks like, well, we can get other people, civilians to do that. I'm like, I don't know if that's really where we want to go, right? You need somebody who's charged with the legitimate use of of state power to deal with problems as they arise, right? It doesn't always have to be the conflicts that we see in viral videos. And that's what police do. That's what first responders do. They deal with accidents, they deal with suicides, they deal with domestic violence incidents, and we're not even paying attention to that. It's not a part of our conversation about who police are as a force in the society. You know, again, throughout the book, I'm trying to offer a sense of the contradictions. There's this historically prescribed role, you know, perpetuation of order, but there's also how police have evolved given the kind of society that we live in where they're doing things that many of us depend on. You know, whether or not we want to acknowledge that, it sort of doesn't matter, but it, it's there, you know, and, and it's something that I try to remind people of in conversations we're having about abolition. So when you say something like policing exists for the advancement of the interest of capital, mm-hmm. what do you mean in concrete terms? So, you know, in order for a capitalist society to function, in order for a market society to function, private property rights have to be protected, right? And so if I'm someone who owns a business and somebody breaks in, I have to have means of recourse, right? I have to be able to document that I've been violated in a certain way. I've lost property. My store has been breached. Police are there to document that report. The courts are there to prosecute if we find someone who's been charged with having done this, a suspect. And so that's really basic. And if we go back to the Constitution, a lot of it is about how do we create the conditions for free enterprise or market society to take hold. In the society we're in at this particular moment, right, and again, thinking about cities, police aren't just there to help people when there's like a break-in in their stores, but they're also there to present us all with a sense of safety so that we can do the things that are necessary for commerce to happen, right? And so... Right the sense that commercial corridors are safe places for us to be, or that I can purchase a house or a condo in a city without having to worry about break-ins or assaults or anything else, right? And so I think all of that's, again, it's happening behind our backs sometimes. We're not really paying attention to it, but it's one of the things we're looking for when we make choices about how we want to inhabit uh, urban space. And so police have been central to the project of uh, rehabilitation in a lot of cities. But that kind of real estate development and um, rent intensification can't really happen unless we have the general perception of, of safety, right? And at the same time, 
one of the key economic motors of many cities, tourism, right? You have to create the perception of safety. And of course, in the book, my argument is not that we need more policing, it's that we can find other ways of addressing the inequality, the needs of young people, creating the kind of city that, that we can all have and all enjoy that doesn't involve heavier policing. Yeah, and I just want to say, and look, there's the part where cops sort of exist to kind of backstop the security that makes a market society possible in the first place, right? That's one thing. But then there's this other deeper point that you really flesh out in the book, and I want to make sure it's not lost, mm-hmm. which is as long as there is deprivation and degradation, as long as we have an economic order basically designed to produce a disposable underclass, right. these conditions will breed despair and crime. And yeah, we'll need police to deal with that. And police do deal with that. But what is frustrating is whether you want to abolish the police or whether you want to hire 10 million more police and give them all the money they want. Neither approach addresses the core problems in society. They're attacking manifestations of those problems in different ways. And I don't mean crime only exists because inequality exists, but how much crime would go away if people lived in richer, more viable communities where material and spiritual needs were met, mm. where precarity wasn't just a permanent feature of life. I don't know, man, but but probably a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got examples, right? I mean, I, I used to live in Rochester, New York for years, and I lived there when they had a lot of problems with respect to crime and, and homicides. And we could just drive two hours, three hours over to Canada. <laughs> and it was a totally different situation, right? You know, Toronto, you know, much larger city with nowhere near the sort of homicide rate that we had. And I mean, they've had problems since, but still, it's not like Chicago, right? You know, so I'm, I'm like you. I don't think that those things will completely go away. Violence, assault, conflicts, they're part of human experiences. But I think that a lot of the destitution a lot of the desperation and uh, the survival crimes that people commit could go away. We could reduce some of these things. I think also criminalized forms of work, which is slightly different, where we're arresting people for just simply trying to make a living, right? I think that could also go away as well, right? I mean, it's fundamentally unfair that I live here in California where there's at least three legal cannabis dispensaries within a short walk from me. But in our great state of Louisiana, they're still arresting people for cannabis possession, right? So I just think that sort of system just seems totally out of whack and and unfair in my mind. We're having this conversation against the backdrop of what happened to Jordan Neely on the on the subway in New York. And you know, I'm not trying to get into the specifics of that, except to say, in a case like that, one of the first thoughts I have is, it never should have got to that point. Right. That this is a person who should have been helped long before we got to that day on that train where that tragedy unfolded. And there's a bit of post-war history that you tell in the book that people should be aware of because it does ground a lot of your argument. Mm-hmm. You know, the, we have a second reconstruction and that dismantles Jim Crow. We get all these social programs aimed at reducing poverty. And many of them really did work initially. Right. But ultimately, you know, the great society liberals, as you call them, they didn't seek to bolster labor rights and unionization for black workers, which was at the core of the post-war expansion of the white middle class. Instead, they go all in 
on investments in moral rehabilitation. In other words, they want to fix the cultural pathologies of the poor. Right, right. But if you don't do anything to undermine the material conditions producing the cycles of poverty in the first place, then you're just dealing with symptoms, right? Like not causes. Yeah, and then, you know, the other part about it, and I talk about this primarily through the writings of James Boggs, but all sorts of folks during the 1960s sounding an alarm about automation, right? And the impact of automation on the availability of gainful employment within cities, right? So Black people in urban areas during the 1960s really are the canaries in the coal mine, so to speak, of this mounting problem of computerization and automation. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't completely take away jobs, right? I mean, I think what some of those folks in the 1960s didn't anticipate was that the economy would evolve in a way that would make cheap consumer goods available to us through globalization. It would make consumption still available to us through credit, not to mention the kind of gig economy that we we exist in now. So I think they were important, though, those criticisms in the 60s, because what they're laying out is this problem of capital intensification within the industry and its capacity to degrade labor and devalue our labor. And we're seeing it now, I mean, in fresh waves, not just chat GPT, but other forms of reducing the need for living labor on the horizon. And that's happened across all sorts of different sectors. So I think it's something we have to be on guard about now. But back to the essential point, Black urban folks were the first to feel those shocks of dislocation as a result of technology, but we're seeing that spread across the country and we can visit all sorts of towns that were once thriving, but now are just complete ghost towns and don't really have the economic base they once had. And that's been filled in with all sorts of desperation and need. What part of all this do you think the Black Lives Matter movement is missing? What do you think the contradictions of the blind spots here are? And I should say, it's hard to, when you talk about BLM, who are we talking about exactly? Are we talking about people on Twitter? Are we talking about the people marching in the streets? Are we talking about the actual organization itself? I mean, right. it's not a monolithic thing with a clear voice. So, so there's that caveat. But do you feel like, to the extent that we can use BLM as a kind of catch-all for just the general movement, do you think it's missing this, like fundamentally just missing this or overlooking it or dismissing it or downplaying it or what? So I think certain branches of it, certain manifestations of it are missing what we're talking about right now. But what I try to say early on is that I'm I'm inspired by the left wing of, of BLM. I've participated in protests and other activities. I've had students who are organizers with Black Youth Project in Chicago. I've had you know, family and friends, my own kids who've been involved in different manifestations. And so it is broad, it's complex, it's diverse. But I do think uh, one of the things that's missing is a willingness to talk about class and to talk about capitalism directly, right? So there's some, there are some pockets, but overall, I think it's a much more difficult conversation for us to have. One of the things that's happened, kind of going back to what you said earlier about the Great Society liberals, I mean, they really do shift the terrain from what the New Dealers did earlier, which is these interventions in the economy that oftentimes tried to put labor in a better place, right? It was a compromise. It wasn't perfect. With the Great Society liberals, we see a, a shift towards thinking about race as the major 
axis of conflict and of inequality within the society, right? And so for them, the problems of class had already been resolved. This is not something to worry about anymore. The issue is of, of race and of poverty. And I think we still bear the imprint of that. It's much easier for many Americans to talk about race and to talk about racist cops than it is for us to center on these experiences that we're all feeling, right? I mean, it's funny. I've traveled a lot over the last couple of months, and everywhere I go, people are saying the same things. The cost of housing is too high. Basic things that we need on a day-to-day are just too expensive and out of reach. People are feeling insecure about higher education. Many people are concerned about infrastructures in their cities, you know, and the, the water crises in different places is just one manifestation of that. And some folks are still worried about crime and public safety, right? So when you go to these different cities, everybody's saying the same things, but we don't really have, I don't know if it's the language or have the discourse to really shape what it is. What's the fundamental problem? What's going on with this? And some activists will say, you know, it's capitalism, but I think we're not quite there yet. So I think we're getting there. But part of what I'm thinking about in this book is how do we push ourselves to not just think of this problem of police violence as something separate or an exception to the American society that we inhabit, but it's really a part of it, right? It's one manifestation of a broader set of problems that we should all be concerned about. It's not something that can be solved through old school ethnic politics where Black people come up with a list of demands and try to have those solved. These are issues that require broader societal transformation. You talk a little bit about woke capitalism and that kind of thing in the book, and it can feel detached from some of the material realities. It's like, it sometimes feels like we we can be recapitulating some of the battles that that were more or less won in the civil rights area. But but, but even the civil rights leaders, the MLKs and the Bayard Rustins, I mean, they, they knew that the next battle, and in many ways a harder battle, was for sustainable economic justice. Right. And that was a harder battle because lots of powerful people were fine taking a stand against racism. But when you started talking about redistribution and the war economy, yeah. well, that's a bigger problem. A lot of corporations are extremely cool with anti-racism, but they're not cool with anti-capitalism. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's like a, it's a conundrum for us that makes it difficult to do these, you know, sometimes people want to compare the U.S. to other European countries, right? We can't make that comparison easily because from the very beginning, we've been a bourgeois society. We went from a colony to being a, a country for the capitalist class, right? And then slowly begin to incorporate other people into the constitutional framework from 1789. So I just think it's like, from the very beginning, we were at a disadvantage, right? You know, we didn't start out with a constitution that enshrined the rights of, of working class people. That's, that hasn't been the story here. So Yeah, look, it's not like the civil rights movement was just a symbolic victory. I mean, hell, it, poverty in the country was cut in half between 1964 and 1974. But that only reinforces your point. Right. Because those gains didn't last. They were rolled back starting in the mid-70s. And you know, it's worth saying, I, I, I'm i not, and I don't think you are opposed to more diversity, more representation. Diversity is good. Representation is good, but it's not enough. And you spend time talking about what's happened in cities where Black Americans have ascended to political power, but they end up falling into the same traps and reproducing 
the same cycles that they genuinely want to escape. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to that, right, I'll go back to an old quote, I'll paraphrase him, from uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was really instrumental as a civil rights attorney, but of course the first Black person to serve on the Supreme Court. When he was asked about the Clarence Thomas nomination, his response was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, that what was most important was not the nominee's color, but his ideology. And I think that's been one of the problems when we see this ascension of Black political figures, especially in the last like two decades or so. Many of them are stylistically akin to a progressive politics, right? They emote in a certain way. They present in a certain way that recalls earlier progressive or radical politics. But many of them have taken a pretty, you know, neoliberal and pro-market approach to how they govern. And I think that's the, that should be the test for us, you know, going forward. We've got to take one last quick break. But when we come back, if the goal is to abolish the conditions that lead to unjust outcomes, how do we find the political will to actually do that? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So if abolishing the conditions is the goal, what do you think are the policies that can help us get there? And do you think they're actually realizable? Do you think there's enough democratic support for those policies? Because a lot turns on that question, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all this can only be resolved through politics. Like, I can talk about solutions. You can talk about solutions. We can also talk about what needs to happen. But unless those coalitions are built, which is a tough and long process, 
we won't see the changes, right? But what I do sort of allude to in the more speculative passages in the book, I do talk about things like public works, more in the mold of like the Works Progress Administration or the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. So that would mean publicly funded and publicly managed jobs programs. And the reason I choose that and I choose to talk about it at a municipal scale is because I do think that like large metropolitan areas in this country operate almost like city-states, right? They're places where we can workshop ideas and, and hopefully scale those upwards. Like for me to talk about a federal jobs program right now would be total Pollyanna, right? To, to, to say that right now, because we know that the coalitions don't exist at the national level, but they are progressive pockets, right? So Los Angeles County, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, or Cook County, those are places where we might be able to mount something that resembles public works at the municipal scale. And there's some examples. So one of the things they've done here in, in Los Angeles with the train system, right, the metro system, is they've actually implemented a transit ambassadors program where they hired around 200 people because, you know, public safety on trains has become an issue. I mean, ridership in a lot of places has dropped. Chicago's the same way. And so with the drop in ridership, there's a lot less people on the trains, much more in the way of, of either property crimes or violent crimes and assaults as well as a tremendous amount of, of drug use and, and destitution. So these transit ambassadors are unarmed. They go around on the trains and provide support. They can help coordinate with emergency services if people need them. So things like that hold out some potential. And I think when I saw some of the rollouts of it, it was largely young people, also overrepresentation of people of color. So I think things like that could be done in cities and, of course, scaled up once they're proven to be successful ways of providing gainful employment, but also addressing some of the needs that exist within cities. The other thing I would say, which I alluded to earlier, would be decommodification. And we've seen this presented to the American public in a few ways over the last decade or so. During those Sanders presidential campaigns and the discussions about Medicare for all, we saw vast publics that were in support of that. I mean, even in places like South Carolina, right, the majority of Black voters, even though they didn't vote for Sanders in the end, were in support of Medicare for all, right? So I think we can move towards decommodification of healthcare, of housing through multiple strategies, and that can involve revitalized and sustainable or well-funded public housing schemes, as well as cooperatives, community land trusts, rent controls, all these other things that have worked to try to make housing accessible to people in early historical periods that have been banished, not necessarily because they were unsuccessful, but because they ran counter to what the demands of the real estate and the interests of the real estate forces were in cities. So I, I think we can get back to that. But again, the problem or the trick is to build the coalitions that will support that, both at the level of the populace, but also within these legislative bodies. Well, that's one thing I, I have to push you on a little bit, because I, I really do wonder what you think is politically possible. I mean, you write at one point in the book that, and now I'm quoting, the liberalness of the racial frame leads back towards reformist politics and ethnic brokering, and as such undermines the most progressive to revolutionary aspirations of many activists and citizens who have crowded under the BLM banner. Oh. And, you know, my thought is... <laughs> If you want a broad coalition, and we both do because it's required, then by definition, 
that coalition is not going to be revolutionary. I mean, we're not going to abolish capitalism, right? There's, there's just, that's not on the menu. There's nothing close to majority support for that. Mm. Now, I don't know where the limits are, but there are limits. Do you have any sense of where those might be? Yeah, again, I think, you know, if we're talking about larger cities, um, people are clamoring for solutions, right? People are talking openly about the questions of the unhoused, the unaffordability of housing for most people. I mean, many of the friends I have here in LA, regardless of age, have roommates in order to survive and pay their rents or their mortgages in a few cases. I think that's where it has to start. That's where the possibility is. We're all facing similar issues, right? And, and for me, the unhoused person and the person who has to take on a roommate, they're on the same continuum. There's a life in common that they have, mm -hmm. even if their level of destitution is different, so I just think that there's possibilities. I'm optimistic. You know, I'm also sober about what kind of society we live in and the ways we're able to uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of, of victory <laughs> a lot of times. But yeah, I just think when we look at the real experiences people are having right now, affordability crisis, questions of public safety, concerns about adequate health care, not just physical, but also mental health care, we're saying the same things, but we have to be in conversation with each other in the ways that will allow us to say, well, you know what? We're all worried about the same things. Let's try to figure out a, a solution. I'll give you one example, concrete, because I know I've been talking about, you know, kind of broad illustrations. But when I lived in Rochester, New York, I was there for the decade of the 2000s, 2001 to 2011, basically. I got involved in a coalition that was trying to deal with lead paint poisoning. And... Rochester is a much smaller city than L.A. or Chicago. It's much more manageable. You get the sense when you live in a place that size that you can, you can affect change. You know people, you bump into folks. Like I knew the mayor back when I lived there. But when I was a part of that coalition, I got drawn into it through my partner. There were all sorts of people in it. I mean, even though this was a problem that really affected Black and Puerto Rican kids in the city who lived in the neighborhoods with older, dilapidated, housing stock, paint that was there from before the 1970s, even though it affected people in a way that was, you know, had its racial disproportionalities. When you looked at the coalition, you had teachers, you had social workers, you had clergy, you had some folks in law enforcement, because one of the arguments they're making is that because of the cognitive problems people have, they're unable to finish school and they end up being in this kind of school to prison Pipeline is the phrase folks were using back then. So when you looked at the coalition, it was diverse, right? It was people from all walks of life. And I think we have to remind ourselves, if I talk to some of those same people in the room, if I talk to them about whether they were in support of capitalism or whether they would be anti-capitalist, most would probably be like, what the hell are you talking about, right? Like, that's never going to happen. But for them, they're like, well, but we do have to do something about this problem. And one thing that we need to do is get these landlords to clean up their buildings. And we were able to accomplish that, right? We were able to achieve that in the city of Rochester and try to reduce pretty much an epidemic of lead paint poisoning and then impose restrictions on landlords. And I think in other issues, we can do the same thing. But it requires, again, that flexibility to say, how do I work with these people on this particular issue? Not the expectation that they're going to be against the cops, they're also going to be anti-capitalists, and they're also going to want to see socialism, right? That's just, 
that's not the way political life operates at an everyday scale or everyday level. So I think it's a lesson that a lot of us need. Put down the the iPhone and stop doom scrolling and sort of get involved with people where we are. And that's where the possibilities, I think, come into view. Yeah, I mean, the the potential for a broad multiracial working class coalition is there. It's always been there. And, you know, the problem with the singular emphasis on racism is that it it can be alienating to a lot of potential political allies. And the problem isn't that we can't talk about the realities of racism. We have to. But the way we talk about it does matter. And the way the discourse has evolved in the last few years isn't as politically productive as we need it to be. You know what I mean? Like, if you're a non-racist working class or poor white person in the South, where I grew up and where I live and where you grew up, you don't want people telling you about your white privilege because life is hard and you don't feel any of that privilege because you're struggling check to check like everyone else. You have the same material insecurities as everyone else, as poor and working class people everywhere. You know, the actual fascist and the racist and the anti-democratic types, those people are real, man. They've always been real and, and they can't be reached. They just have to be defeated. But I think there are many, many more people who aren't that and they can be reached if we have the right strategy. Because even some of the mainstream left-wing activists that you may be critical of in the book, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that you share the same basic aspirations, the same basic political project. It's a question of how to get there. Yeah. You know, it's a question of strategy and tactics more than it is goals and values. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a good point about the the anti-racism and the way it relates to working class whites who may not be the targets, right, of that that criticism. But the anti-racist discourse also doesn't always capture the different experiences of Black people, right? Which is another point I try to make, you know, emphatically yeah. throughout the book. And if you have somebody who's in a leadership position who only wants to focus on racism or rooting out racism, why is that the priority over the millions of Black people who are still trying to find a decent employment at a living wage? People who are still trying to find adequate housing to their needs. People who are trying to make sure that their kids have quality schooling and the possibilities of some life that's better than their own. I mean, to me, it clouds out some of that discussion as well, right? It, it really prioritizes what oftentimes can be hyper-symbolic or overly symbolic problems, uh, like as we saw you know, in the midst of the George Floyd protests, like the emphasis on statuary and street names, which I'm all for, right? Let's get rid of some of these old Confederate names. <laughs> They're not helpful. But in my mind, that's less important than all these other material things that we're talking about. And I think there are many people in the society who would say the same. So I just think there's a way that anti-racism, it, it consumes us in some ways. And in some ways it should. But I think it blocks us from thinking about these other material uh, issues, which are more difficult to organize around. What in your mind are the greatest threats or the greatest challenges to building this working class coalition? I mean, I, I would say number one would be the way that social media as a phenomenon has altered people's sense of what constitutes political life and also a sense of what exists in the world, right? So I think that for many people, the connection to social media has become a primary way of understanding the world. I also don't want to romanticize what existed before that, right? So I don't want to say, oh, the old network news was so much better. They had their own problems. 
cable news networks also had problems. But I do think the fragmentation that happens with social media, right, where we not only become siloed, but like almost ultra-siloed, right, where we're only listening to people who share the same views and same preoccupations, I think it does cut us off from connections that are necessary to build a vibrant uh, politics. You get into conversations with people who should know better, who really think social media is like this viable civic space. And it's never been, right? I mean, it, there's some things that can happen. I don't, I don't want to doubt it. There's some connections you can make. And in that meeting, the meetings we were having back in the 2000s, I can't go in and just blow somebody off because they say something I don't like, right? When you're in the same room with them. And if you're trying to achieve a goal together, you got to listen. You got to hear people out. You got to hear what they're saying and take it with some good faith that this person is not a moron, that we share some similar values. We both want to see this problem addressed. And we're going to hang in there together until we achieve it. It's not to say we won't have conflicts, but that sort of civility doesn't reign on social media. If somebody says something you don't like, you're going to get criticized for it. And it's almost like everybody's a troll, right? Everybody's there to one-up. Everybody's there to criticize or make a joke. So it really is a political dead end of the worst kind. And I think we need to get back to other forms of communication, other forms of information about our world that we live in that won't lead to cynicism and siloing and all of the problems that we've seen that have just been able to manifest and expand, you know, as a result of social media. So that would be like the number one problem for me. I know that's, that's probably not popular with some of my, my academic colleagues who love it, but I think it's proven itself to be really anti-political as a, a medium. I think it's made it um, dangerously easy to mistake self-expression for political action. Right. Absolutely. And that's not, that's not what we need. No, not at all. Once again, the book is called After Black Lives Matter. It's a great book, Cedric. It's a serious book. And I really think it's a necessary contribution to a conversation that, to me, often feels very limited. So thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. If you appreciated this episode, share the link with your friends on all these socials. New episodes of the gray area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. 